it does not say it's the day of Matan Torah. Uh, it only says it's the time of the wheat harvest and the first fruits. So why does it not say it's the day of Matan Torah? So he says an amazing thing. He says, you know, whether Matan Torah is a happy day for you or a sad day depends on, on your attitude toward the Torah. Meaning, if you love to keep Hashem's mitzvot and you keep Hashem's mitzvot to the best of your ability, it is the happiest day of the year. But if not, then maybe you're better off without it. That way you're not going to be accountable. So God cannot say it's a happy day because of Matan Torah. Only you can say it's a happy day because of Matan Torah. But Hashem could say, listen, even if you're not observant, it's a happy day because there's a wheat harvest going on. So that is a what's called a Davor Hashavah L'Chal Nefesh. Everybody can appreciate that. Which means our job is to make Matan Torah a joyous day because it all depends on how we live, how we live our lives. So you know that um, I guess some of you might have. Oh no, everyone here keeps only one day, right? About uh, yeah. one day. Yeah. So uh, yesterday we already read the Parsha Sashavua, Parsha Snaso in Chutzlaretz. Uh, they're not going to read it till next Shabbos. But you know that Parsha Snaso is the largest parsha in the Torah, 176 psukim. And there must be something significant about the number 176, although I don't know what it is, because the largest chapter in Tehillim is 119, and that has eight psukim, it's an olive base, but eight psukim for each letter of the olive base. So 22 letters times eight is 176. So the largest parsha is 176, and uh, the largest Tehillim is 176. And the largest volume of Gemara, although it's a little misleading, is Baba Basra. And that has Kuf Ayin Vav, 176 pages, but not really, because in the Gemara, the pages start with Daf Base. So really, it's 175 pages. But in terms of the numeral on the page, it says 176. So you can ask um, some of your warrant. Um, Kabbalistic teachers, you know, what is the significance of 176? But the one thing I can tell you is, the reason why it is the largest parsha of the Torah, there is a Hasidic Shavuot, because on Shavuos, Hashem brings so much Torah into the world. And there's so much left over that it gets concretized in the largest parsha, even in the written Torah. You'll have so many verses because there is so much Torah in the world, and there's so much Torah in the world, so a person could grab onto it, and you could internalize it in that way. Do you have an all-night, did you have an all-night thing? Yeah. Yeah. Went to the coast house, too? Wow, okay. Very good, okay, Baruch Hashem. What's the number again? 176, 176. Of course, you know, it's a funny thing, this is another thought to think about, and that is, if you're a Balkora, you're a person who reigns, Naso is not the hardest Parsha because there's one set of Sukkim that is repeated 12 times with the exact words and the exact tune. So even though it's a big, big Parsha, there is one thing that is repeated over and over and over and over again. And you'll recall, this is the Nisim. When the Mishkan was dedicated, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, Every day, a different tribe, the head of a different tribe, brought a bunch of korbanos to dedicate the Mishkan. And the Torah, they brought, number one, everybody brought the same thing. 
But number two, the Torah repeats it in detail. Now, the Torah doesn't waste words. The Torah could have told me what the first Nasi brought, and then it could have just said, and everybody else brought the same thing. But the Torah doesn't do that. The Torah uh, says on the first person, A, B, C through Z. Then it repeats. The second person did A, B, C through Z. The third person, the fourth person, the fifth person, the sixth person, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So you have like a hundred psukim. In other words, it's a big parsha, but a hundred psukim are like repetition of the light. So it's a very interesting question people ask. Why does the Torah repeat every Nasi's korban over and over and over and over again? Where it could have just said, everybody brought the same thing. Just say it once. So there's actually a very, very deep lesson here. And the, the deep lesson is that even though everybody did the same thing externally, they had a unique intention. The Medrash actually goes through every tribe. So for example, a silver bowl is something that they brought. But the meaning of Yehuda bringing the silver bowl was different than Yisachar, different than Zebulun. Which means even if externally everybody's doing the same thing, internally you have to bring your own kavana and your own intention and your own spirituality to it. Because Hashem wants you to serve him as an individual and not just imitating what everybody else does. And that's why, even though externally all of the Nisiyam brought the same korban, internally it was 12 different offerings. Okay, and uh, that, that's an important thing. Now you may remember, if you have a good memory, uh, you, may, you may remember uh, that these korbanas of the Nisiyam are not only read in the Parsha Sashavua, but they are also the special Torah reading for Hanukkah. On Hanukkah, we also read about the Nisim. Now, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of a problem because you have 12 Nisim and only eight days of Hanukkah. So the way it works is, basically, you do one Nasi a day, but the last day of Hanukkah, you do a whole bunch of them uh, to finish the twelve. Now, what do the Nisim have to do with Hanukkah? The Nisim brought their korban when the Mishkan was dedicated in the Midbar. Hanukkah is during the second temple. The second, not even the first temple, the second temple. So why do I read about, I mean, it is the same word, the dedication, but it's not the same time, it's not the same ceremony. So there's an interesting answer to this. The interesting answer is, that really, when the Jewish people were building the Mishkan, the Mishkan was ready to be dedicated on the 25th of Kislev. It was ready. Everything was ready. But Hashem wanted to delay the Chanukah of the Mishkan till the month of Nisan, because that's the month of redemption. So that's why the Mishkan was not dedicated until Nisan. But the 25th of Kislev complained to Hashem. And they said to Hashem, why did you take away our chance to be the day of dedicating the Mishkan? So Hashem promised, said to the 25th of, of Kislev, I'll make it up to you that during the second temple, you will be the day that they will rededicate the Mishkan, not the Mishkan, the, the base of Mikdash in the time of the Yavani. So in a sense, Hanukkah, the holiday of Hanukkah, is a makeup for Hanukkah, for the, uh, the 25th of Kislev not being the day 
of the Mishkan's dedication. Therefore, on the holiday of Hanukkah, we read about the Nisim dedicating the Mishkan because that should have happened during Hanukkah. But it didn't because Hashem wanted to delay it until Nisan. Okay, so that's just a little thought about that. Kriyas, Kriyas, that's Okay. So we're discussing, uh, again, the halachas of cooking on Shabbos. And again, uh, these do get uh, complicated. So I'm going to try to keep it as straightforward as, as, you can, as I can. So I'm going to, again, introduce some terms that you probably are familiar with over the years, but we'll try to be a little more precise about them. Right? There is an iser, there is a malacha called cooking. You're not allowed to cook on Shabbos. By the way, before I get into the Shabbos, you are allowed to cook on Yom Tov. You're not allowed to cook on Shabbos. Right? That's one of the main, main differences between Shabbos and Yom Tov. That is, cooking is permitted. However, even on Yom Tov, not all cooking is permitted. Like this is going to be, I mean, it's already passed, but since it just happened, it's worthwhile to talk about a little bit. Number one, on Yom Tif, you're not allowed to cook for a non-Jew. You can only cook for a Jew. Okay, so there is an iser to cook for a non-Jew on Yom Tif, And that's a Doraisa prohibition. The Torah prohibits cooking for a non-Jew. <coughs> because of this, the rabbis added a prohibition that you don't even invite a non-Jew to a Yom Tov meal. Meaning the following. Are you allowed to invite a non-Jew to a Shabbos meal? Yes, you are. It may or may may not be the best thing to do for Shabbos, but halakhically you are allowed to invite. I don't even mean that they're in the process of conversion, even if it's your next door neighbor that has a Christmas tree. According to the halakha, you are allowed to invite them for a Shabbos meal. Because since on Shabbos you're not allowed to cook, there is no fear you're going to cook extra for them. But on Yom Tov, you're not allowed to invite a non-Jew to a Yom Tov meal. The reason? Because since you are allowed to cook for a Jew, the Rabbanan were afraid you would cook extra for the guy. And that is us. That's an interesting thing where Yom Tif is stricter than Shabbos. Now, all of this is in the Gemara. The Gemara says explicitly, you do not invite a non-Jew to a Yom Tif meal. A Shabbos meal, you may. A Yom Tif meal, you may not. Now, this creates some very, very difficult problems in contemporary life. Problem number one is, what is the situation of a non-Jew who's mamish in the process of converting to Judaism. Now, technically, until they finally go to the mikvah, they're non-Jewish. But it's obvious that one of the ways they learn how to be a Jew is by observing the Jewish home. So Shabbos is not a problem. I can invite them for Shabbos. But what? A, 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 ger, not a, ger, a candidate for Geras cannot go to a Pesach Seder? A candidate for Geras cannot go to a Yom Tif minion? Uh, not, not a minion, a Yom Tif Suda. How could that be? How is the non-Jew who wants to become Jewish, how are they supposed to learn about Judaism? So, on that, some people are lenient for someone who's in the process of conversion. But then there's another problem, which is a problem coming out of a problem. 
And that is the problem of intermarriage. I mean, unfortunately, as, as, as you know, uh, the intermarriage rate, at least in the United States, is tragically, tragically high. In some places, the intermarriage rate is as high as 70%. You know what that means? That means seven out of 10 marriages in which one person is a Jew, the other person is not a Jew. Mm. Seven out of 10. People get upset when you compare it to the Holocaust. They say, oh, how dare you compare it to the Holocaust? But the truth of the matter is, if you think about how many Jews have been lost by intermarriage. It's, it, it literally is millions of Jews. So it's been well described that intermarriage is a self-perpetuating or perpetrating Holocaust that Jews are doing to themselves. Now, here's the problem. And this is Bechlal, a whole difficult problem. Let's assume, God forbid, someone has a sibling who marries, technically not a marriage, but who lives with a non-Jewish woman, let's say. It could be either either direction, but living with a non-Jewish woman. Now, if you ask the question, am I allowed to go to the wedding or whatever it is, yeah, I'm not here to give you a psaac, but you start off with the idea that you're not supposed to go, and then you work with whether there are special reasons to allow to go, which means sometimes you'll be allowed to go, but you always have to start off with the basic idea you're not supposed to go unless there's a really, really, really important reason. Okay. But what's interesting is once they're married, and I'm using marriage in a non-literal way, once the Jew and the non-Jew is married, you're not supposed to cut them off. You know, in Europe, the minog used to be, if there was an intermarriage, the parents considered the Jewish child as dead, and they sat shiva for the child. That was the custom in Europe. But Gedolim have said, that we can't do that way today. You know, in Europe, for someone to intermarry was so rare that they were spitting on the Jewish people. They basically said, I don't want to be Jewish. Today, you know, it's ignorance. It's, a, it's such an accepted thing. Nobody is like saying, I don't want to be Jewish. So if you want to have any connection to bring them back, so even with the non-Jew, you have to have some friendly connection. And that way, the non-Jewish person might be influenced and the non-Jewish person may be an influence. You know, it's a funny thing. You say God has a sense of humor uh, in the sense that sometimes, as tragic as we look at it as an intermarriage, sometimes it's the non-Jewish person who brings the Jewish person back to Yiddishkeit, especially if the non-Jewish person is a woman who gets more interested in spirituality. Because remember, the non-Jew wanted to marry into Jew, <laughs> marry a Jew. <laughs> The Jew wanted to marry a non-Jew. So the Jew was looking to get out. The non-Jew on some level may have been looking to get in. The non-Jew may actually be the key to influencing the Jew. So even though, you know, you try to talk people out of intermarriage and you may, may, maybe you don't go to the wedding, but once it's a fait accompli, you gotta have a different relationship. You gotta try to salvage whatever Jewish connection they could still have, you see? So this raises a problem, a very the problem is, okay, can I invite an intermarried couple to, to my Yom Tif meal? Can I invite them either to my Seder? 
this may have a very powerful impact on them. And yet, what is our problem? The halacha says you don't invite non-Jews to yomtif meals. Yeah. So once again, you have to ask a shaila if you have any uh, any particular situation. But the basic idea is that we're pretty lenient because essentially, you're not really inviting the non-Jew as a separate person. You're inviting the non-Jew because of the Jew that he or she is married to. So we don't treat that as a separate invitation to the non-Jew. So, okay, so again, I'm not, I'm not here to go over all of those halakhas, but just be aware of this issue, that even as simple a thing as inviting a non-Jew to a yomtif meal is technically a halakhic problem, and it's not a problem for a Shabbos meal. Even though Shabbos is stricter than yomtif, but with respect to this law, Shabbos is more lenient than yomtif. All right, so that's one restriction on yomtif. You don't cook for a non-Jew. A second restriction is, on yomtif, you're only allowed to cook for yomtif. You cannot cook for the next day. Now, if you have leftovers, you have leftovers. But if you deliberately are cooking, let's say, something for the next day, not allowed to do that. So, if yomtif is... Wednesday, so it's Pasha, you're not allowed to cook on Wednesday for Thursday, that's obvious. But we got ourselves a problem when Yom Tov is Friday, exactly as this year, right? So I go straight from the Yom Tov of Shavuos to Shabbos. So the problem is I'm not allowed to cook on Shabbos but I'm not allowed to cook on Yom Tif for Shabbos either. I can only cook on Yom Tif for Yom Tif. So, what you might say is, okay, either Shabbos gets leftovers. That's not, I mean, that's possible. That's not the greatest covet of Shabbos. Or Shabbos food, you gotta cook on Wednesday. And then the food is not gonna be so fresh. The Chachamim very much wanted you to have freshly cooked food for Shabbos. So how can you do that when Yom Tov is right before Shabbos? Because you're not allowed to cook on Yom Tov for Shabbos. So the invention that allows this, which had to be done this year, although maybe you didn't have to do it, we'll talk about that in a moment, is what is called Erev Tafshilin. Erev Tafshilin basically says if you set aside food for Shabbos before the Yom Tif, so you started your Shabbos preparations before you're allowed to cook on Yom Tif for Shabbos meaning if you didn't do an Erev Tafshilin you would not be allowed to cook on Yom Tif for Shabbos if you made an Erev Tafshilin you are allowed to cook on Yom Tov for Shabbos. Now, an Erev Tafshilin is a very simple thing. You simply set aside before Yom Tov, before Yom Tov, meaning this year would be on uh, Thursday, before Thursday night, you set aside one food that is cooked and one food that is baked. One cooked food and one baked food and you designate it for Shabbos. That's why you have to eat it on Shabbos. And that will allow you to do all your cooking on Friday for Shabbos, because you started it before. 
So the minhagah is that for the cooked food, they take a hard-boiled egg or a gefilte piece of gefilte fish. And the baked food would typically be matzah or challah. Okay, so all you do is you take a hard-boiled egg or a piece of fish and you take a matzah or a piece of challah or a whole challah, whatever it is. You make a bracha because, you know, this is a mitzvah to do it in order to cook for Shabbos. And then you put it away and you have to be careful that on Shabbos you will eat it. You can eat it any meal you want, but sometime on Shabbos you're going to eat it. And this is called Eruv Tafshilin. Okay, and this is what? The purpose of Eruv Tafshilin is to permit you to cook on Yom Tov for Shabbos. By the way, this, is, this would be necessary not only in Israel, where Yom Tov was only Friday, even in Chutz Laaretz, where Yom Tov was Friday and Shabbos, you still have to make an Erev Tafshilin because the same way you can't cook for Yom Tov to Shabbos, you can't cook on the first day of Yom Tov for the second day of Yom Tov unless you make an Erev Tafshilin. So you'd have to have an Erev Tafshilin uh, in Chutz Laaretz as well. Yeah. Um, when you say you set them aside, you make the bracha, what bracha are you talking about? No, there is a bracha. If you look in the Siddur, when you set aside the two foods, you make a bracha, bracha ta Hashem elokeinu melacholam, asher kiddushani v'mitzvah sabbat zivano al mitzvahs eruv, on the mitzvah of eruv tafshilin. It's a bracha. Now, what if you are a guest in somebody's home and you're not going to be doing any cooking? I'm not going to be cooking, right? Do I have to make an eruv tafshilin? Because I'm not cooking. I mean, they have to make Whoever my host is has to make it, but why do I have to make it? So the other is, many people do say, if you're not doing cooking, you don't have to make an air of tefshilin. But other people say, well, wait a second. You're not, if, since you're not allowed to prepare on Yom Tif for Shabbos, you wouldn't be allowed to light Shabbos candles on Yom Tif for Shabbos unless you made an Arab. So you need an Arab tafshilin, not just for cooking, but you actually need it to be able to light candles. But for that, you wouldn't make a bracha. In other words, if you're not doing cooking, you make an Arab tafshilin without a bracha. Okay? So that's what Arab tafshilin is, and it's the necessary mechanism for, uh, to allow you to cook on Yom Tov for four shots. Okay. So those are the two main, res- actually there are three restrictions on cooking on Yom Tov. Number one, you can't cook for a guy. Number two, you cannot cook for another day or Shabbos, but Shabbos has the loophole of Erev Tavshilin. And the third, interestingly enough, is you can't cook for your animal. Let's assume you have a very finicky pet, and the pet doesn't eat dog food or cat food, but you make special cooked food for your animal. Uh, you're not allowed to cook for animals. On Yom Tov, you've got to pre-cook it. There's no air of tefillin to allow you to cook for for a pet. Right? So those are the three restrictions on cooking. Okay, but now let's move away from Yom Tov and let's go back to Shabbos. So I'm going to introduce a number of terms, which again you you probably have heard, but just to be sure we're all on the same page. Okay, you're not allowed to cook on Shabbos. It's one of the 39 malachos, and uh, it's forbidden to cook solid food and it's forbidden to cook liquid liquid food. However, what is called halachic cooking depends on the vessel that you put the food in. Now, 
a vessel that is directly on the fire, and by fire I include fire, gas, or electricity, it's directly on the source of generating heat, is given the name Kli Rishon. It is a first level vessel. So a pot is a Kli Rishon, a hot water urn is a Kli Rishon. Anything that is directly on the fire or a heat source is Kli Rishon. Even when it is taken off the fire, it still is called a Kli Rishon. The only difference is, the first thing is called Kli Rishon al Ho'esh, a Kli Rishon on the fire. And the other thing is called Kli Rishon Shalom al Ho'esh, a Kli Rishon that's not on the fire. But it's still called a Kli Rishon. Okay, so I'm first going to name, name the utensils, then we'll talk about the halakhas. Now, when I pour from a kli rishon onto something else, that is called heroi kli rishon, pouring from a kli rishon. Okay? So kli rishon is the water in the urn. When I let out the water into a cup, that hot water coming out is called eroi klirishon. When I, once the cup is filled with the water, that cup is called a klisheni. Okay, so again, the urn is called a klirishon. The water flowing from the urn is eroi. Once it's in the cup, it's called klisheni. And if you pour from that cup into another cup, that is called Kli Shalishi. Now, in Halacha, the only differences we're going to have is Kli Rishon, Kli Shani, Kli Shalishi. Once you hit Kli Shalishi, then Revi'i, Chamishi, Shishi, Asiri makes no difference, meaning Everything from klishlishi beyond klishlishi is klishlishi halachically. It makes no difference. Okay. So here is our basic hierarchy of rules. Anything in a klishon, even if it's not on the fire, still has the power to cook food as long as the temperature is Yad Soledispo. Now remember, Yad Soledispo literally means hot enough that the hand pulls away, and typically that is around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So that means hot water in a clearly shown. By hot water, I mean water which is 110 degrees or more in a Kli Rishon has the koach to cook anything you put into it. Does this also apply if the Kli Rishon is on the plata, like on Yomtif? Yeah, yeah. Well, on Yomtif, you're allowed to cook, so, mm-hmm. so there's no problem. Okay. <laughs> in other words, in other words it's, it's cooking, but uh, okay. whatever, if you're allowed to cook, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, once it's in a cup, 
It's now called a klisheni. So what is the status of a klisheni? This is going to be very, very important. So there's a big machlokes Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And I'm going to be a little, a little oversimplifying here, but this is pretty, pretty accurate. Sephardim basically take the position that a klisheni does not cook. except for a very few things. So Svardim are very, very lenient with a klisheni. Ashkenazim take the opposite position, that a klisheni does cook most things, except for water and olive oil, which is only cooked in a klisheni. So for Svardim, Klisheni does not have the power to cook. Ashkenazim are machmir that a Klisheni does have the power to cook. Most things. Only if, but only if it's Yatsu Lettuce is that? If it's less than Yatsu Lettuce it can never have the power to cook. Okay. Now, when I take the Klisheni water and I transfer it to yet another cup, I now have a Kli Shalishi. So what is the status of a Kli Shalishi? So Rav Moshe Feinstein rules, a Kli Shalishi does not have the power to cook at all. So once it hits a Kli Shalishi, we don't care how hot it is. It can no longer cook. Other people say that Klisheni is no better than a klisheni, so whatever you're machmir in a klisheni, again, Svardim have no problem because Svardim, as soon as it's a klisheni, Svardim say it's okay. But the people who are machmir by klisheni will also be machmir by klisheni. But Moshe says no, and other people are machmir. Okay, so so now let's apply a few situations here. Let's say. you have a hot bowl of soup. And you want to put in some raw pieces of raw, raw pieces of onion. Uh, let's say the soup was not uh, cooked with enough spices or whatever it is. So you want to put in some scallions that were chopped up or some pieces of raw onion. So these are uncooked, uncooked vegetables. Can I put uncooked vegetables in hot soup? So let's first analyze a bowl of soup. Is a bowl of soup a klirishon, a klisheni, a klishalishi? Well, it's not a Kli Rishon, that's for sure, because the Kli Rishon is the pot of soup. So it's a Dabra Pashit. Are you allowed to put raw onions in the pot of soup? Absolutely not. And that's even if the soup is off the fire. Kli Rishon Because that would be cooking the onions or the scallions or the carrots. So you couldn't put it 
in a Klirishim. But everyone understands that. Even if it's off the fire, as long as it's Yatsoletis, which of course it is. Okay. Now, when the soup is transferred by a ladle from the pot into the bowl, what is the bowl? Is the bowl a cliche? Or is the bowl a klishalishi? Now, this is going to be a very big difference. Like Spartan, for sure, I could put the onions in the hot soup because it's, it's at the least, it's no more than a klishani, for sure. But let's follow Ashkenazim for a moment. And of course, the Alter Rebbe Shita is Ashkenazi Shita. I'm not allowed to put the onions in a klishani because a klishani cooks most things. I am allowed to put it in a klishalishi. Right? So based on that bottom line, if we assume I cannot put the onions in a klishalishi, okay, and Ashkenazim say I cannot put the onions in a klishalishi, okay, but I could put the onions in a klishalishi, okay, going with your Moshe Feinstein, would I be allowed to put the onions in a bowl of hot soup. So, I'll give you two ways of analyzing it. It all depends on how you analyze a ladle. The pot is a klirisha. If the ladle is a klisheni, then the bowl is a klishlishi. And if I follow Rav Moshe Feinstein, that a klishlishi, even if it's hot, doesn't have the power to cook, I could put raw vegetables in a klishlishi. But some people, most peskim say no, and they say the following. They say that a ladle that is immersed in the klishlishi actually becomes a klishlishi in itself. And the result of that is, if the pot was a klirisha, the ladle is a klirisha. If the ladle is a klirisha, the bowl of soup is a klisheni. Now, if you're smarty, that's actually not a problem. Okay, it's a klisheni, so what? I could put vegetables in a klisheni. So smarty, we're going to be okay no matter what. But since Ashkenazim Paskin, I cannot put raw. Now again, you'll notice, I'm not talking about reheating yet. This is a separate issue. I'm talking about raw. raw. We're talking about right. So you have to keep these things separate questions. Since Ashkenazim do not put raw uncooked food, even in a klisheni, I would not be allowed to put raw vegetables in a klisheni, which is the soup bowl, because they would be deemed to be cooked by the heat of the soup, unless the soup is below yatsa lettuce, which means it's lukewarm. I mean, if it's below yatsa lettuce, but it's, everything is mucho, that's not the question. But if the soup is 110 or more, certainly if it's hot soup, I would not be able to do it. Okay, everyone understands the basic concept here of, again, this is not reheating questions yet, don't confuse it. We are talking about raw, putting raw food, raw vegetables in. Now, 
What about some people like to put uh, challah in chicken soup? I have hot soup, and I want to put challah in the soup. So here, you have... Uh, so once again, uh, we're going with the bowl of the soup as a cliché because of the ladle. So you certainly could not put raw food in the soup, but the challah was already baked. So maybe, just like we say, there's no cooking after cooking, so it's already been cooked, so to speak. So the answer is no, you cannot put challah in hot soup, because even if there's no cooking after cooking, there is cooking after baking. The challah was only baked, and now it's being cooked, so you would not be allowed to put challah in hot soup, unless you would make another bowl, make it a klishlishi, make it a mamasha klishlishi. But if you had keneglach, let's say you had cold keneglach, keneglach are matzo balls. Mm-hmm. Matzo balls were actually boiled. I could put, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm talking about reheating, I could put a cold matzo ball in a hot bowl of soup because since the matzo ball was already cooked, we have the principle there is no issue of cooking when something's already cooked. So do you see the difference between putting challah in hot soup versus putting a matzah ball, a kenedlach, kenedl, in hot soup? A kenedl was already boiled. That's how you make it. So as a result, there is no issue of cooking that which was already cooked. A challah was not boiled or cooked. A challah was only baked. And there is an iser of cooking after baking, even though there's no iser of cooking after cooking. So essentially, we would treat the challah the same way we would treat a raw carrot. Right now, a cooked carrot, let's say a cooked carrot, you'd be allowed, even if it's cold, again, I'm going I'm giving you a heat, you could again put in the hot soup, because of Ein Bishel, Achar Bishel, okay? But right now, just to keep it simple, I, I, I do want to illustrate primarily uncooked food, the idea of uncooked food. So, uh, let's take lemon. Just a bunch, a bunch of examples, because you have to hear a lot of examples to, for it to sink in. Uh, I have some tea, okay? And we'll talk about how you make tea, we'll talk about that, but I have tea, hot tea. So I want to take a slice of lemon, and drop it in the tea. Not to squeeze it, I just want to drop the wedge of lemon in the tea. Now the lemon is uncooked, it's a raw, it's a raw uncooked fruit. Am I allowed to drop a wedge of lemon in a hot glass or cup of tea? So, a glass of tea is generally a cliché because what you do is you pour it from a kettle or you pour it from an urn, uh, whatever it is. So the urn or the kettle is clay rishon. There's no ladle here. The glass is clay shani. So according to Svardin, you could put the lemon in the tea. Or nana, you could take the mint, mint leaves, put them in the tea because Sephardim are very makel on a klisheni. According to Ashkenazim, you would not be allowed to put a wedge of lemon 
into a glass of tea, and you could not put the nana, the mint, uncooked, uncooked, in a glass of tea, unless you do klishlishi, which means you simply pour the tea from glass one into glass two, now you have a klishlishi, so for that you're allowed to put the lemon wedge, at least like with Moshe Feinstein, the lemon wedge and the nana, okay? Now even like Spartan, by the way, you're not allowed to pour, in other you can't put the nana in the glass and pour from the kettle because that's pouring from a klirisha. Mm-hmm. It's only once the water is in the glass, I can add the nana because I'm adding it to a klisheni rather than pouring on it from a klirisha. See the difference? So the sequencing, sequencing is a very, very important idea here. Okay. Okay, so uh, this is kind of the. Now, again, I'm not yet talking about reheating. I mean, I gave you a few examples, I got ahead of myself, but I'm not focusing on reheating. Right now, we're discussing raw, uncooked things, Kli Rishon, Kli Shani, Kli Shlishi, and the like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're at someone's house who's already and they hold by this leniency of like Kli Shani, they can. Yeah. Are you, like, say they make you a cup of tea, are you allowed to drink the tea? Yeah, that, 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 is, a good, uh, that is a good question. But uh, the answer would be you are allowed to drink it, as long as you didn't ask them to make it yeah. for you. Uh, the reason is because even Ashkenazim agree that the basic halacha is like the Svartim, but mm-hmm. it's a chumrah, so it's not, okay. uh, it's not a pro. I mean, we, we act... As if it's also, but it's not a true prohibition. Okay. So there's grounds for leniency if you didn't ask to have the tea made that way. Yeah. Um, is adding breadcrumbs to a bowl of soup the same way as adding cola? Adding breadcrumbs to soup or something? Yeah, I think it would be the same problem because uh, once again, if they were only baked, so there is a prohibition of cooking after baking, and since a hot bowl of soup via the ladle is treated like a klisheni. So Ashkenazim will be machmer. Now again, Sephardim are not going to have a problem. Because once it's a cliche, Sephardim allow everything in the cliche, except for very few things. Does it matter if the bowl of soup um, is now below 110 degrees? Oh, of course it does. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, let me repeat again. If it's below 110, although it's not very appetizing soup at that point, unless it's gazpacho or something, uh, if it's below 110, everything, can, anything can be added. Okay, whenever we talk about the potential of hot liquid to cook, we are always talking about it's at least 110. When it's below 110, you can add raw carrots, you can add anything you want. Yeah. Rabbi, what about those yellow soup nuts that everyone Right, so, so yeah, yeah, so let's talk about that, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about the, uh, the instant soup. Uh, in America, the main, well, they sell it here now too, is tradition is the main one. And here they have awesome, you know, different, uh, you know, instant soup. You add uh, hot water, uh, and uh, you have uh, soup and noodles or something. So the question is, can you make uh, the instant soup on Shabbos? So this really gets us into a, a reheating problem in the sense of the following. Uh, the way these soups are made is the noodles are pre-cooked. They're actually boiled, and then they are dehydrated. So... Since what you're doing is you're, when you add hot water, even from the urn directly, you are cooking something that's already been cooked. 
From that perspective, it would be allowed. But, 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 there's a problem. That is, even though the basic noodles have been cooked, they do add stuff to the soup mix that has not been cooked. For example, the, they add peas and carrots. The peas and carrots may not necessarily have been cooked. Uh, spices have not necessarily been cooked. So therefore, it's, it's brought down la halacha that you have to be afraid that some of, the ingre- some of the ingredients are not cooked. Therefore, you cannot add water from the urn because that's pouring from a kli risham. And even if you filled a glass and poured, that would be pouring, pouring from a kli so Ashkenazim would be stripped. So you'd have to make it in a klishlishi, meaning to say, um, I have the urn, I fill up glass one, glass one is shani, pour from glass one to glass three, which is shlishi, then I can pour shlishi onto the soup mix and have it that way. You'd have to do it in a klishlishi. Um, now again, if your only problem were the noodles, you could actually do it from a klishlishi because the noodles have already been cooked and that's ain bishol. There's no prohibition of cooking after, after cooking. But the problem is there are other ingredients there. Now, there is another problem. Uh, everything is interlocked. Not a problem with the soup, but a problem with the other manachama, right? In other words, uh, Osa makes a few different things. They make uh, noodle soup. Well, you get noodle soup. But they also make things like mashed potatoes or couscous. Now there, you do have a pro- another problem because even without the cooking problem, it's like making a dough. When you, when you have things that clump together, that's another malacha called lush. And there you'll, you'll have a problem, meaning even if klishlishi will take off the cooking problem. Uh, so with the soup, it's not a problem because you don't get clumps, you don't get a dough. But with the mashed potatoes or the couscous, you get a dough. So uh, one has to be... Well, maybe we'll talk about that later, but that, that's a separate halacha issue, right? So a lot of these things have multiple halachos that you have to think about. Yeah. Um, if you have a, a pot that's shown, and you transfer um, some soup using a ladle into a different like pot or bowl or something, yeah. do you have to use a new ladle now for that second pot? Or can you use the original ladle? Uh, you can use the original ladle. Uh, the only thing is, um, you'd have to wait until the original ladle doesn't have its heat from the klirisha. Meaning, once it cooled down, then and then know, it'll take on the status of kli. It'll take on the status of whatever you put it into. But if it's still hot from the klirisha, then you'd have a problem of the klirisha. Okay. So uh, now, let me now raise another issue where Sfardim and Ashkenazim. Uh, where Svartim are more mekel than Ashkenazim. The Magen Avram, Magen Avram is one of the great commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, brings in the name of the Maharshal. Maharshal is Moreno Harav Shlomo Luria. I think he was a distant cousin of the Arizal, whose name was Rav Yitzhak Luria, but Rav Shlomo Luria lived in the 1500s as well, a little before the Ari. And uh, he's called Marshal. In fact, he's in the back. His commentary is on the back of every Gemara with the Marshal. And the Marshal is one of the great, great poskim of Poland. And the Marshal says a very interesting thing. Listen to what the Marshal says. The Marshal says the distinction 
between Kli Rishon, Kli Sheni, Kli Shalishi only applies to liquids. But solid foods remain Kli Rishon no matter how many times they're transferred. So, let's give an example of this. Let's take a baked potato, a hot baked potato. So the Marshal says, it's like the baked potato is its own Kli Rishon. It's a, it's a physical, right? So no matter how many different plates you transfer the baked potato, it's going to be a Kli Rishon. It's only liquids. When, when, when liquid goes from Rishon to Shani to Shlishi, it loses its heat. But when a solid goes from here to there to there, it still remains just as hot. So therefore, the Marshal says, a Davar Gush, Davar Gush means a solid food, will retain the capacity to cook no matter how many times it's removed. So now, let me give you some examples of how this is going to work. Are you, let's say you have hot meat. Could be, yeah, it could be hot chicken. It could be hot Yerushalmi kugel. It could be a hot potato. And you have raw salad. You have lettuce and tomatoes. Am I allowed to put lettuce and tomatoes next to hot meat? Touches. Hot potato. Now, if you simply apply the Clerishon Clichéni business, I would say this. Well, listen, uh, the meat was removed from a tray in the oven. I put it on a... So that's the tray in the oven is Clerishon. The serving dish is Clichéni. My plate is Clichéni. So, no problem, you might think. By the time the meat is on my plate, it's a shalishi. It no longer cooks, so it's not going to cook the salad. That's what you would think. Answer, says the marshal, since the chicken or the baked potato is solid, it retains its status no matter how far down you go. As long as it's yes, again, as long as it's yes, so lettuce bow. If it's below yes, lettuce bow, it's not a problem. And therefore, as long as it's yes, so lettuce bow, it will cook any raw food, uncooked food. Again, we're not talking about reheating here. It'll cook any raw food that it comes in contact with. Okay, this is the chumrah of davar gush. Davar gush just means solid food. And here, Spartan, once again, are lenient. So there are two interesting, actually, I'll get to, if I get to today, I'll get to a, a third case where Spartan are Machmer, but there are two areas where Spartan are Mekel. They're Mekel in Klisheni, and they're Mekel in a Dobor Gush having the status of Klisheni once it gets transferred. Okay, Ashkenazim are machmer in both. They're machmer on Klisheni and they're machmer on Dober Gush. So let me give you again a simple example. I don't know if any of you eat or like Yerushalmi Kogel, famous 
Yushalmi dish, caramelized sugar noodle kugel, luxon kugel. And uh, the authentic Israeli way of serving it is with a pickle. You've got to have a pickle on top. Uh, so most of the time when you get your shamal kugel, it's not piping hot. But let's imagine you have real hot kugel. Are you allowed to put your pickle on top of real hot kugel? Actually, it doesn't have to be real hot. Yeah, it's so lettuce bow kugel. So, once again, if you apply the cliché-ny paradigms, the kugel on your plate is either a shani or a shlishi, but since Ashkenazim follow the rule that a davar gush that's yad soledis by will continue to be able to cook no matter how far it's removed, so that means a Yushalmi kugel that's yad soledis by would cook any raw, uncooked food that you'd put in contact with it, so it would cook halachically the pickle, so you would not be allowed to put the pickle on top of it or next to it because of the malacha of bishol. You would have to, uh, you could eat it separately, you know, side by side, or you can wait until the kugel goes below the temperature of yad soledespa. Yeah. So the pickling process doesn't count as cooking? Yeah, so that's correct. So it's, uh, based on that, Pickling itself is not cooking. Now, if, if they cooked it before they pickled it or something, uh, you're right. Uh, then we'd be back to there's no issue of cooking after cooking. But if we assume that they just took a raw cucumber and they pickled it in uh, water and, and spices, that would not be called cooking. And therefore, uh, there would be an issue of cooking both the pickle and cooking the uh, water in the pickle, the liquid in the in the pickle, okay? So uh, those are the two chumras of Ashkenazim, where machmer and klisheni, and where machmer and davor gush, in fact, davor gush, we treat like a klirisham, davor gush, we treat like a klirisham mamish, uh, in, that, uh, in that way. So now, let's talk a little bit about making tea on Shabbos. Tea and coffee. Okay, and... Uh, this will be based on the principles we talked about, but there's a few, few extra things to, to add. What is wrong? Well, we have a tea bag, right? The regular tea bag. Am I allowed to simply uh, either put in a tea bag in a cup of water and uh, in, in a cup and put the cup under an urn, or fill up the cup and put in the tea bag? Now, again, the urn is a cleavage. Okay, the urn is a kli risha. The cup that you fill up is a kli sheni. Uh, tea is generally uncooked. Tea is dried out. There's a drying out process. But tea generally is not cooked. Now, I'll talk about instant tea in a moment, why instant tea might be different. But a regular uh, leaf, leaf tea is generally uncooked. So let's go through all the, all the possibilities. If I have a tea bag of uncooked tea and I put it under the urn, for sure that's going to be us, sir, because I'm pouring water from a Kli Rishon onto the tea, so that for sure is us, sir, okay? So the one thing that everybody says you cannot do is you cannot uh, take uh, a tea bag in a cup and pour water from a kettle onto the tea, okay? 
But what about the other thing? What about uh, if I first fill up the cup from the urn? So now the cup is a cliché. Why can't I make the tea in a cliché? Why can't I put the tea bag in the cliché water? Now, like Ashkenazim, the answer is very simple. Ashkenazim say cliché cooks as well. So like Ashkenazim, it's a double pashat that I cannot use a tea bag in a cliché. But you might think, but like Spartan, what's the problem? So here I do have to qualify a little bit that even though Spartan are generally lenient with a cliché, they are lenient. But certain things, a small category of things, are said to be so delicate that they get cooked very easily. And these are called kale bishol, things that are very easily cooked. And tea is regarded as kale bishol. So, so the bottom line here is, just to start this off, that both Ashkenazim and Sephardim say you cannot put a tea bag in hot water of a klisheni on Shabbos, but for slightly different reasons. Ashkenazim would say because a klisheni always cooks. Sephardim would say even though a klisheni normally doesn't cook, but tea is called kale bishon. Right, you got so the bottom line is the same. I cannot put a tea bag in hot water because even though the hot water is a cliché, um, it's going to cook the tea. Either because Ashkenazim say cliché always cooks if it's yatsoletis bow, if it's and Sfardim will also admit that this falls under the small category, a small category that are called kale bishon. Okay. So, given the fact that I can't use my tea bag, so what can I do? How can I make tea? So there are two different ways. Actually, there are three ways. Uh, but there, well, okay, there are three ways you can make tea. And I want to go over, well, now remember, this is not yet instant. Instant tea will be a different cheshman. I'm talking about tea bag tea. Method number one is klishlishi. That simply means uh, the urn is Risham, cup is Shani, pour from that cup onto another cup. So the second cup is a Shalishi. At that point, according to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you could put your tea bag in the Kli Shalishi, and that's not considered cooking. Right, so that is one way to make tea, and a lot of people are so in that. Uh, there's Somech on Rav Moshe Feinstein that a klishalishi does not have the capacity to cook. Some people, however, are machmer on tea because they say once tea is a special category of easily cooked, some are going to be machmer even in klishalishi. So that's why the best way is the next way, mm-hmm. meaning klishalishi is not the best way because even though I mentioned klishalishi would work for raw carrots and raw onions, but tea might be worse because of the principle of kale bisho. Okay? So that's why method one is not the best way. In fact, Ramosha himself writes that he does not make tea that way, that although he considers it to be mutter to put a tea bag in a klishalishi, he himself does not use a klishalishi for tea because of kale bisho. So the second way of making tea is by what is called sense. 
Now, sense is Yiddish for what in English would be called essence. You make a tea essence before Shabbos, before Shabbos. In Yiddish, uh, they use the word sense. Uh, and what that means basically is, pour, before Shabbos, pour your hot water over your tea bags. And what you do is you make a thick concentrate. So uh, instead of just one tea bag, let's say you put five tea bags or six tea bags or ten tea bags and you pour water over it so you have a very thick uh, tea essence. Now, then what you do on Shabbos, now we'll have to explain why this works, is, and you've got to follow the sequence exactly, but I want, to exp- I want you to understand why. Let me first tell you the sequence, then we'll try to analyze why you've got to do it that way. So, I have an essence of tea. And that essence is cold. It doesn't have to be hot. In other words, it was hot, and by the time Shabbos comes, it's cold. I even put it in the refrigerator. When I want to make a cup of tea, I mean, the essence is too thick anyway for me to drink, what I do is, I go to the urn, I fill up a cup, which is now a clean shame. I then add the cold essence to the cup. Okay, now it's important you do it this way. Again, I, I'm going to go over why, but be sure you understand what the what before you know the why. You don't add the essence to, to an empty cup and then add the hot water. You add the hot water and then you add some essence. This, by the way, just in terms of making a good cup of tea, It's a little more of an art than a science because you understand the problem. If you add too little essence, you know, it has no taste. You don't taste the tea. If you add too much essence, what's going to happen is it'll be cold because the essence is cold. The essence is not hot. Right? So you got to figure out the right amount of essence. But it's very, very important that first you add the hot water And then you add the tea essence. Now, let's go over why that's so. What's the problem? I think we've already explained why you you can't use tea bags. I think think we explained that. And and, and although some will use a klishlishi, others say because of kale bishol, we don't use a klishlishi for tea. Okay. Now, tea essence, and I do have to get ahead of myself a little bit, is liquid that was cooked because uh, it was already brought to a boil. It was hot water. The liquid that was cooked, however, is now cold. So, here's the knetch. You'll remember the rule. There is no cooking after cooking. Once something was cooked, there's no iser of cooking it again. Right? There's no cooking after cooking. But the Ramah says... That only applies to solid food. But when liquids have cooled off, we're machmir, that there is an iser to reheat them. Okay, that's the general rule. However, we don't combine two chumras. In other words, there's a chumra thou shalt not reheat liquids that have cooled. 
And Ashkenazim have a second chumar that a klisheni cooks. But when you take a liquid that's already been cooked, and the only prohibition is klisheni, on that we're not going to be machmer. So, so now you see the difference here. Here's the problem. I take cold sense. If I were to put the sense in the cup first and then put water from the urn, I would be cooking from a Kli Rishon. And even though the sense was already cooked, I would be machmer, there is cooking after cooking for a liquid that's cooled off. But when I fill the cliche with water. So remember, Sephardim anyway say, once it's a cliche, it doesn't cook. Ashkenazim are strict. But we're not going to be strict with a liquid that's already been cooked, even though it's cooled down. And therefore, you can put tea scents that's already been heated in a cliche that's hot. And ergo, that's how you make tea. This is actually not a simple explanation because essentially what it's saying is even though Ashkenazim are machmer, they're not going to be machmer if they have to combine both chumras at the same time. They will not be machmer. In other words, B'kitzer, the rule can be stated this way. A liquid that was cooked but has cooled down may be placed in a hot klisheni. Right? That's, that's the conclusion here. Therefore, tea scents, that's cold, can be placed in a klisheni, but you can't pour klirishon water over it. Okay? So that's the second way to make tea, which is the most common way of making tea. Now, the best of the best way of making tea is you make a tea scent, but you keep it hot over Shabbos. And maybe you've seen this. Uh, a lot of Mahadran hotels do it this way. Uh, you make tea scents, but instead of putting it in the refrigerator, you keep a little container of tea scents on top of an urn so it stays hot. Now there, everything is perfect because you're adding hot water to hot scents. There's no cooking going on at all because the liquid hasn't cooled off. You're just mixing, right? You're allowed to mix hot water with hot water. Right? So that's the best way. The, the absolute best way of sense is you keep your tea sense hot on Shabbos when you mix it with hot water. But most people don't have that minnow. Most people will use cold tea sense. But if you're using cold tea sense, you have to be very, very careful that first you add the hot water to the klisheni and then you add the tea sense. Okay? I hope this makes makes sense. Okay. All righty. Now, do you have a question? Yeah. yeah. What's the putting on top of the urn? If you then, can you take it off and put it back on? What are the issues with that? Uh, the truth of the matter is you, you can. You can. We'll, we'll talk about that, returning things to the fire. But the, uh, on top of an urn, you can take off an eye. It's not like a stovetop and it's not like a blech in that way. But we'll get to that the next week. Now, let me just mention one comment about instant tea. Right? Until now, we've been talking about um, tea bags. The thing about instant tea that is different is instant tea is actually cooked. It's actually boiled in production. 
So since the instant tea is boiled, and it's boiled in solid form, it'll become a liquid, but it's actually boiled in solid form. So there is no iser of making instant tea because there's no iser of cooking after something was cooked. Therefore, it would actually appear, me'ikar hadin, you can actually pour clirishon water on tea powder and stir it. However, the minog is we do it in a klisheni, not a klishelishi. We do it in a klisheni, and that is we first fill up a cup with hot water, and then we put the powder in. And uh, if you ask me why is that different than a tea bag, where we don't make a tea bag in klisheni, the answer is because the, the tea in a tea bag has not been cooked. Uh, the instant tea has in fact been cooked, okay? So uh, basically, therefore, tea bags are either, I'm sorry, tea by tea bag is either made by klishulishi or by sense, and instant tea is going to be made in a klisheni, even though miikaradin, pouring from a klishon, would seem to be, would seem to be okay. Now with coffee, you know, you're going to have the same problems. Uh, regular coffee is roasted, right? If you're making really, you know, not, not instant coffee. Regular coffee is roasted, and since there is cooking after roasting, all the laws of cooking are going to apply to regular coffee. So you would not be allowed to make regular coffee uh, in a clay. Uh, you, you certainly cannot pour from a clay rishon. Uh, you can't even put it in a clay shani. Uh, if you're makele on a klishlishi, you can do a klishlishi. Um, I'm not sure if people make coffee scents, but you can do the scents like tea. In other words, uh, roasted coffee is just like tea bags. So whatever you do with tea bags, you do with roasted coffee. Instant coffee, however, is like instant tea. It has undergone a cooking process. So you could be mako with a iroi klirishon, pouring with klirishon or klisheni. But with flavorings, it's a little more complicated because a lot of uh, instant coffees have flavorings. Vanilla, whatever it is, cinnamon. Now there you do have a problem. It's similar to the tradition soup problem because the coffee itself, instant coffee has been cooked for sure. No question. But some of the additional flavorings may not have been cooked. And if they, if not, if they may not have been cooked, then Ashkenazim are going to have a problem even in a klisheni. Uh, klishlishi, you could be mako, because even though coffee might be kalebishol, but the flavorings may not be kalebishol, and therefore klishlishi would be permitted. Okay, so uh, I hope this is not too confusing, but at least have a sense of the general rules. Now again, Although I did give you a lot of examples of reheating that came up incidentally, our main focus has not been on reheating. Our main focus has been on raw food getting cooked uh, in, the, uh, in the process. So our next step is going to be uh, reheating food that's already been cooked. And here, uh, once again, uh, we, we actually mentioned already more than once today, uh, the basic principles. Uh, there is no cooking there's no prohibition of cooking if something has already been cooked. There is, however, a prohibition of cooking if something has been roasted or baked because cooking is a different uh, process. Uh, and then we have the distinction between solid and liquid. 
And here too we have a machlokis Ashkenazim and Sfardim. And this is the one case out of three things we talked about where Sfardim are stricter. Meaning, solid food that's been cooked, even if it's totally cold, now, there is no iser to reheat it. Now, there may be restrictions on how you reheat it. We'll get to it. But there's no iser of bishol on reheating solid food that's been fully cooked. Liquids that have cooled off, however, there is an iser of reheating them. So the question is, what do we mean by cooled off? Svardim are very strict. This is the one that they're strict on. They say... Any liquid that is less than Yad Soledis, by meaning if it was under, once it hits under 110 degrees, you are not allowed to reheat it. So they define cooled off as less than Yad Soledis. Ramah says no. As long as it has any type of warmth, meaning as long as it's a little more than room temperature, a little more than room temperature. That's still called warm and you can reheat it. So that would actually mean that Svardim are much stricter on your ability to reheat liquids. On the other hand, they're more makel and cliche so, so you see, they'd, they'd allow you to reheat it in ways that are not called cooking. Again, just to summarize, there are three machloksim between Ashkenazim and Svardim in the laws of cooking on Shabbos. Machlokis number one, which is the most important one, is Svardim are extremely lenient in klisheni. And they say a klisheni normally does not cook, except in cases like tea, where it's called kale bisho. But the vast majority of things, raw vegetables, raw onions, whatever it would be, uh, it will not cook in a klisheni. So I could put the onions in a chicken soup or whatever it would be, because it's not going to cook. Right? Svardim are very lenient in klisheni. Ashkenazim are very strict in klisheni. That's one machlokis. Machlokis number two is hot solid food. Uh, Svardim basically say that the same way I apply klisheni klisheni to hot liquid that goes from one to the other, I apply it to a hot potato or a hot chicken or a hot kugel, and I'll apply the rules of klisheni in terms of its ability to cook. <coughs> That's called dabar gush. Ashkenazim are strict on that. They treat a hot potato like a klisheni. So those are two areas where Ashkenazim are strict, yeah, and Sephardim are lenient. The third area is where Sephardim are strict and Ashkenazim are lenient. And that is the rule that you're not allowed to reheat a liquid that has cooled down. According to Sephardim, any cooling below Yad Soledis is called cool down and you cannot reheat. But, but you could in a klisheni because they say klisheni is not cooking. In other words, you got to read it with that. Ashkenazim say as long as it's above room temperature you are allowed to, I mean, let's say it's 90 degrees, right? If I, if I have uh, something that's still 90 degrees, according to Ashkenazim, I would not be allowed to reheat it. According to Svardim, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. According to Svardim, I would not be allowed to reheat it. According to Ashkenazim, I could reheat it, okay? 
So that's a th- so, so, so again, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, almost all of the laws of cooking can be analyzed based on combining these different these three principles. They're like foundational machloksen in this whole area. Okay? Now, the last thing, which I'm going to say for next week, but I just want to introduce it, is when we get into reheating food, there are two sets of questions we got to address. One question is the problem of cooking after cooking and the difference in liquid and solid and the definition of what's a liquid that cools off. That pertains to whether you're transgressing the malacha of cooking. Okay, and that I think we, we did introduce today. But there's a separate set of questions which are rabbinic in nature. And that is, even if there's no issue of reheating, either a solid food or a liquid, but you're not allowed to do it in a way that looks like you're cooking. That's a rabbinic problem of Marisai, and people see you doing something that looks like cooking. Now, again, if there's a real problem of cooking, you don't need a rabbinic degree. I can't do it because I'm cooking. But even if I'm not cooking, if it looks like cooking, there may be problems. This is called mirsi kimavasha. And that is why when we get to the question of reheating food, we have to ask two questions. Am I transgressing the malacha of cooking? If I am, for sure I can't do it. But even if I'm not transgressing the malacha of cooking, am I doing something that has a maris ayin, an appearance of cooking? And that's why we have to talk about blechs, and that's why a pot on top of a pot all of those things are ways of negating a plata. Those are ways of negating the appearance of cooking. But remember, negating the appearance of cooking doesn't help if you're actually cooking. So you first have to, so the way you approach it is, you first have to always analyze, am I transgressing cooking? If the answer is yes, can't do it. <clears throat> if the answer is no, I'm not transgressing cooking, you then have to ask, okay, Am I doing something that has the marisayan of mirsi kimavashel? And that'll be the separate issues of hot of crockpots and Shabbos platas and warming uh, trays and all, the, all those other things we'll talk about, right? But that's like a separate subject that is connected to mirsi kimavashel. Okay? So I hope uh, this makes relative sense. Okay, so next week we'll finish up the uh, warming uh, issues, the reheating issues of Shabbos. Okay. Have a good, good one. Okay.